This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 175 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented rappers and outspoken activists of his generation, a 45-year-old who won the Best Original Song Oscar in 2015 for Glory, a song he co-wrote and sang with John Legend for the film Selma, and who now is nominated for the Best Original Music and Lyrics Emmy for Letter to the Free, a song he wrote and sang for the documentary 13th. Lonnie Rashid Lynn Jr., or as you're more likely to know him, Comment. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Common and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how he found his voice as a singer and socially woke person over the last quarter century, and how he withstood relentless attacks on his motivations and character from the likes of Bill O'Reilly at Fox News, how he came to add acting to his repertoire of talents, most notably in films such as 2007's Smoke and Aces and the aforementioned Selma, and on the TV series Hell on Wheels between 2011 and 2014, and how his acting impacted his singing and vice versa, how his friendship and collaboration with Ava DuVernay evolved, first on Selma and later on 13th, and how John Legend's Oscar acceptance speech for the former started him on a course to become more knowledgeable and passionate about the problem of mass incarceration, which is the subject of the latter, how he feels about the N-word, Donald Trump, and an EGOT, which he would be one Tony away from should he win an Emmy this year, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Common, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Peace, Scott. Thank you for having me. Of course. Good to see you again. And we always begin just by asking, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Chicago, the south side of Chicago. My mother was a teacher who eventually became a principal. My father, actually, who I wasn't raised with my whole life, they, they split when I was like one and a half years old. But my father played in the ABA for two years and then went on to be a counselor and dealing in correctional facilities and eventually went on to do poetry for, for my album project. Wow. So he had a different different jobs, but those those were the, the occupations that my parents held. Yeah. Now you wrote a memoir in 2011 and in it you said, quote, Chicago blackness with capital letters each gave me understanding, awareness, street sense, and a rhythm, close quote. Can you explain for someone who is neither from Chicago nor black <laughs> what that means? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Chicago is a very segregated city. And growing up amongst black culture, first of all, I experienced the struggle of black culture, meaning some of the rugged aspects, which deals with survival and living and drugs being in the neighborhood, gang culture, which is strong in Chicago. But I also had the beauty of, of black culture, which was the music, the black parties, the sense of knowing who Muhammad Ali is and also Harold Washington, our first black mayor, the sense of community, of family looking out for each other, the, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who was my pastor in my church, teaching me about being unapologetically black and unashamedly Christian. So that gave me a sense of and an identity and a, a culture to embrace. And at the same token, it, it gave me a rhythm. When I say rhythm, yeah. it's like the movement of who I am is connected to that black culture. So I think, Scott, you know, you could relate to it from whatever culture you identify yeah. with. It is giving you your identity and, yeah. and, and your rhythm. Yeah. Well, let's take rhythm literally for a second. What sort of music did you listen to growing up, and what convinced you to begin making music yourself? Well, I listened to, growing up, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I listened to the Commodores, Lionel Richie also. Mm -hmm. 
I listen to Shaka Khan. I listen to Heat Wave and a lot of popular 80s music, whether it was George Michael and Wham or Boy George, the Culture Club, you know, yeah. just some of those hits. And then we also had, like, Chicago had a house music phase that I was listening to. So that was all part of my my palette. And then came hip-hop. Hip-hop came in the early 80s. What was your first exposure to hip-hop? Do you remember? My first exposure to hip-hop was a piece of a record that was called Planet Rock by Africa Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force. It was me hearing that music and saying, what is this? This is incredible. And I saw people dancing to it and they were breakdancing to it. And it was something I'd never seen before. And I related to it so much. I felt like, wow, I want to do this. I felt like I was seeing kids that were like me, but they felt like heroes because they were able to breakdance and, like, and rap. <laughs> Now, how old were you roughly around this time? That time I was 10 years old. Okay. And that actually got me into music. I initially got into to music because I was a break dancer. Really? Yeah. And I, I so happened to be visiting my cousin. I would go spend summer times with my cousin in Cincinnati. And his, one some of our older friends were like a, a rap group that were like, they was like Cincinnati's Run DMC. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I could write a rap. We I remember it was like one night after our seventh grade year, I was 12 years old, we sat and wrote, he, my cousin Ajale and I sat and wrote these raps. And everybody liked my rap. Everybody sang my rap. So that was my entry into to making music. That's great. Yeah, because I played the recorder. <laughs> you know, in, in, in elementary school, everybody has to play the recorder right. or some instrument. But I never was like feeling like I was a musician. Right. You were born with the name, I believe this is correct, Lonnie Rashid Lynn Jr. And in fact, I think that's the name on your Oscar nomination certificate, maybe even the Oscar itself. When and why did you start going by the name, not common at first, but common sense? Yes. Well, officially, my name is Lonnie Rashid Lynn. And, they, you know, somewhere in my Wikipedia, they put Junior. So the Junior, I got Yeah. You. But I don't mind it because my father's name was Lonnie Lynn and... When they called the the Academy Award and said Lonnie Lynn, it, it gave me a chill because my father had just passed in 2014. Oh, wow. And I actually started writing the song Glory, leaving his memorial. Oh, I was wow. leaving his memorial, and that day I had already had the music John had sent me, and I started writing it. So I, it was something really, like, touching and, and, and spiritual about yeah. that experience. But I chose the name Common Sense initially I was looking for a cool rap name that was unique, that was different, but still every day. And my mother always used to stress to me, use common sense, because I used to do dumb <laughs> things. Use your common sense. Right. That was her thing. So the name popped up in my head, and I just said, hey, I'm going to call myself Common Sense. Now, you have the most, I don't know if I'm using the most musically correct words, but I'm going to use the words that I think fit, the most silky, velvety amazing voice forget about singing just talking i could listen to you literally read the phone book and i know people pay you a lot of money to do commercials for that reason but i wonder what, what that's why i was so surprised to read that when you first started rapping or i guess making any sort of music you were actually self-conscious about your voice you were i guess changing it around a bit yeah well first of all thank you scott that's a big compliment <laughs> coming from you oh, i appreciate you. that but when I initially started rapping, first of all, my voice wasn't, it hadn't developed. Okay, that's <laughs> so I was still in, specifically, I was in the studio with the group that I was working with. We had a group in high school and it, these girls were saying to me, they were saying, Rashid, your voice is, it's too high. So I tried, <laughs> so I tried to try to make it deeper. You know, right. I, it's, it's amazing how it's symbolic and it's literal I was finding my voice because initially I didn't have my originality I didn't have my own voice and I was looking for what I could do to establish that voice and it and eventually it evolved yeah your first album can I borrow a dollar came out exactly 25 years ago right Ooh, yeah and I guess started to put you on the map at least on a kind of underground way is that is that a fair description I think can I borrow a dollar was was it was my first release, but it didn't really get the recognition. I did get out, and some some of the underground hip hop community knew me, but I didn't feel like I really made an impact. 
And it was a real eye-opener for me because my view of making records was that once you make a record, things explode. It blows up. Yeah, it yeah. blows up. But it didn't happen like that for me, and it was really such a blessing. And actually, I named my second album Resurrection because my first album, Can I Borrow a Dollar, didn't. I felt like I was not dead, but nobody knew who I was. Right. So Resurrection was like me coming to life. And Resurrection, which came out two years later, I believe, uh, yeah. in 94, 94, did do what you had hoped would happen with the first one, right? And I guess specifically the the single on it, I Used to Love Her. And as I recall, her is sort of a metaphor, correct me if any of this is wrong, but for, or, or, or a, a short I, for, yeah. hip-hop in its essence is real. Yes. And some people on the West Coast, I guess specifically at that time, took exception to that because they thought that was saying that what they were doing was not real or whatever anymore, that they had kind of, I guess particularly as some of the the quote-unquote gangsta rappers yeah. were not happy with you. What was that about? Why? What were you trying to say with that album and that song specifically? And then wh- why did it b- cause all this ruckus? Yeah, well, I'm a child of hip-hop. I love hip-hop culture. And I have a true love for the culture of, of hip-hop. So I wrote the song I used to love her using the acronym H-E-R, mm-hmm. hip-hop in its essence and real, saying how I was observing hip-hop losing its purity. It wasn't because hip-hop had moved to the West Coast that it was losing its purity. Actually, what sparked me to write the song was I saw artists from the East Coast imitating artists from the West Coast. Of course, when hip-hop started, it had the cultural thing that came from New York, and it eventually was really like revolutionary music, really conscious music. The West Coast aspect of it was told in a gangster, but still aware way. I loved West Coast music. Ice Cube, N.W.A., where mm-hmm. I was just as much a fan of them as I, as I am Rakim and Karis One. But unfortunately, when I told the story, you know, and I could see how they could feel that way, but I wasn't really disrespecting the West Coast because I loved the, mm-hmm. some of the West Coast rap. And I just talked about it. It's losing its purity, and that's what offended um, Ice Cube at the time. And now, funny enough, you know, he, he's a buddy of yeah, mine. Yeah, like, <laughs> Time heals all wounds. Time uh, heals, yeah. Now, I don't know if that was the first example of you thinking, I guess, with a social conscience in your music about, you know, you were that not only was the music being changed in a way that you weren't necessarily happy about, but you were I mean, I think even from way back then, you were coming at things from a pretty positive outlook in your music, I think, which not all hip hop or rap certainly does. And I just wonder when you first became politically aware the Guardian did a profile of you not that long ago in which they said that you were woke before woke was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And that seems to be, you know, one early example, but it certainly like goes throughout your work. It's never just like surface level stuff. There's always seems to be making a statement about something deeper. So where did that start? I believe my wokeness (laughs) before the word was even like used in that way. My consciousness started with my, belief in God with, like I told you before, mm-hmm. um, the the church I went to, the people I were around. One of my best friends, Murray, used to play Gil Scott Heron and The Last Poets for me, Bob Marley. Listening to, to KRS-One and Brand Nubians and Big Daddy Kane, who all, you know, they all released conscious music. All this affected me and and, and helped me to to want to be something and want to say something in music. I initially still had that mixture. I'm a 19-year-old kid when my first album came out. I still was, you know, talking a little little <laughs> stuff, but, you know, that wasn't conscious. Right. But I think I came into that, that real understanding that this would be my voice of saying, being conscious in music and, and giving out positive energy. Around my second album, mm-hmm. going into my second album, I realized, because I was... I was reading a lot. I was reading different things, the Bible, the Quran, looking at John Coltrane, and I was like, wow, this music has an impact. And even the kids that were coming up to me, whether it was black kids, white kids, Latino kids, Asian kids, I seen how much it was affecting Mm -hmm. them. And I was like, wow, I can actually use this for a positive. And and in my heart, I'm just a positive 
person. I I do my best to look at things from the most optimistic way and in a loving way. I'm, I've always been amazed because I've seen that when no cameras are on or you've said that some of this awareness at least comes from religion and all of that. How do you maintain that outlook? A lot of people who mean well still can't maintain that positivity all the time. And I'm sure it's not all the time, but yeah, for you, not. but like you're pretty good at it. So what's the, what's the background for that? Yeah. Let, let me declare that I'm <laughs> definitely not always good. And I, you know, I get mad and I can have road rage and, <laughs> and I get in arguments with my friends and sometimes get lazy about many things, some things. So I st- I'm still at work, a work in progress, but I think, that's the most important thing that to understand is to work on yourself and the practice is it has to be a practice put in a discipline put in and you have to acknowledge your emotions but then know how to move past some of those emotions that are not going to be beneficial to you and to others and i i naturally want i like seeing people happy man i want people to be happy i want like people i don't know people i meet and 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 have had uh, some interaction with my family, the the audience. I want people to be happy and feel good about themselves. So I believe it does go back. And, and I don't want to just like make it. When I say religion, mm-hmm. when I say God, it's like I have friends that are that are Muslims, that friends that are Buddhist. My, I have Jewish friends that it's just about the spirituality practice and knowing that the higher that we can operate on a higher vibration and that. You know, God created us to be beings in his likeness. So if if when I remember those things and remember my purpose, and it doesn't always happen, but when I do, that's that's when you see the the best and right. you see the good things. <laughs> and um, you know, like I said, I, I focus on that and, and it's practice. It's practice because it's not always easy. In the late nineties, I guess, there was somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, Wait a minute, you can't go around calling yourself common sense. I guess they were all, another band was calling themselves, was known as common sense. So as a result, you became common. Yeah, that was, that, I gotta say, <laughs> that was like the period I lost my hair and, and that, uh, like I was stressed out. I lost my, <laughs> I started balding. Uh, <laughs> it, it affected me a lot because I, when an artist chooses a name and you create a name and you start building your audience, this was really after my second album. I'm like, man, I'm just building my audience. I'm just getting somewhere. And I have to change my name. And I'm like, who is this group? And it was a group from California who had used the name also. And they were experiencing difficulties because people were coming to their shows expecting to see me <laughs> and be pissed off. Yeah. So I eventually had to let go. It was a good lesson in life for me to, of letting go because the name Common eventually became something. I'm like, really like, oh, yeah, this is a great moniker because... I represent everyday people. I represent the common folk. And, you know, people like it. They feel like they know me when they say common. Yeah. So it, it worked out. But initially it was a tough thing. Just a random side question that occurs to me. You know, for people who don't know you as your full birth name, or I think your friends call you Rashid, Rashid or Raj yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So the average Joe, what do you get? Like Mr. Common or what is, what is that? Do they know what? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, the average Joe is just say common, but I guess it's, it's coming with age. I'm getting more young, younger people coming up saying Mr. Common. I'm like, no, I'm not Mr. Common, but I just, but I just, you know, accept it. I'm grateful that, that people appreciate the music or as fans that want to come up and just say what's up, take a picture. I always encourage people people that do come up to like, yo, let's let's speak before we start taking yeah, a picture. Yeah, Let, yeah. Let's interact. Like I'm I'm keen on connecting with people. That's nice. Before. So in two thousand you put out what was your biggest hit album up to that point, like Water for Chocolate. The single, The Light in particular, blew up on the radio and the charts. The album goes gold. You get a Grammy for best rap solo performance. What was that time like for you where suddenly, not that you hadn't had a big audience with Resurrection, but now this is a different level, right? It was a totally different level. It was going from an underground artist that the other artists appreciated and getting some critical acclaim to mainstream people knowing the song at least. And and me performing at all these like big popular radio summer fest. I remember specifically being in LA 
and performing at one of the radio stations, Summerfest. And it was the first time I had little kids. Like, I remember all these young black girls running up saying, hey, come, come. <laughs> and I, I said, wow, this is beautiful because yeah. it's something about when your music and your art touches young people, touches the kids. Like, I'm, I'm talking seven, eight years yeah. old. It's something real honest and pure about the, the stuff they like. Even though, of course, they like popular things that just... Works, but when you know your, for me to have a song like the light, which is uplifting women and and talking about women in a respectful way, and to see young ladies coming up saying, "Hey, come on, we like this song," that was another moment for me, Scott, where I was like, "This thing is, I have to stay in 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 my space and my purpose of doing music that is meaningful and is conscious." For sure. When and how? I think not long after that, did you and another Chicagoan, Mister West, as in <laughs> Kanye, yeah. first? cross paths and began working together because I think that for the next few years you guys had some important roles in each other's lives yeah well I, I, I met Kanye when he was 19 because my producer at the time no ID brought Kanye around he was like Kanye was a mentee of his and Kanye would play me beats but I was like well no ID's beats are better right now Kanye so I'm using his <laughs> but he would come to my basement and rap he would battle me because I was the one rapper from Chicago, one of the rappers from Chicago getting a lot of light mm -hmm. and love. So, you know, he would challenge me. So we, we formed a cool bond then, but we weren't hanging out and working on music. But then in 2003, he asked me to be on his, his project, College Dropout, and I did a song, Get Him High. But but it also was like him just coming into his own. And, and we kind of, he wrote in this book how, you know, partnerships, have to have balance you have to be able to give and receive and I felt like our partnership was really there like he really was able to deliver some incredible production for me and, and elevate me as an artist truly as an artist and I felt I was able to bring the hip hop culture and that foundation that he's about anyway but I was just helping to solidify that and also challenge him as a producer and we should note that I think you eventually made an appearance on his multi-platinum debut album, The College Dropout. You then signed with his new label, Good Music, yeah. and then worked together on your next album, B, which became your second gold record, which I think, just to reiterate, you know, the amount, and this is all between like 2004, 2005, around then, it's just a lot of success together. So, but one thing I, I think as rap and hip hop became even more mainstream, and obviously that goes back to people who, you know, saw straight out of Compton, know yeah. that that was, it, it was already happening then. But as the years go by and it was really becoming more universally embraced, you got white kids everywhere yeah. that are getting into it too. What I wonder is, did anything change along the way? And for you also, as your profile is growing, because I remember you went on Oprah at one point, I think, and she was talking about the use of the N-word in music. And I think her attitude has been, it shouldn't be anywhere. Like, right. And she's adamant about that. A lot of artists, though, feel that it's sort of reclaiming the meaning of it when yeah. they use it. And so there is a purpose. It's not just throwing it around. So as one example of conversation that started as more people began paying attention to rap and hip hop, how's your thinking evolved on that topic? Because I think it has changed over the years, right? Yeah. Well, when I started off in my music, I used every word under the sun. You know? <laughs> and by the time we were on the Oprah show, I still was using the N word. And I felt, you know, and my mother asked me at the time, like, you shouldn't use, you might go see our first black president, like, that could be a wedge. And I, and, and I told her that if you listen to the way we use the word, the intention of the word is not there to, to demean anybody or to disrespect anybody. And when we do use it with that intention, you know that that's the intent. And I felt, you know, two things. I felt I, I grew up in a culture where we did use the word and it wasn't, it was part of the language and we never was using it to try to, to try to put ourselves in the position of what a white master, how a white master had used it towards people that were enslaved. So it never felt like that energy and we hadn't experienced it from that way. And also we just, it just eventually became something where we were like, this is, we understood the intention of words and said, this is not to, to knock anybody. Do I use it as much? No. A lot of things evolve for me where I understand that I can use other words and, and they and still be effective. And I'm a 
I'm a lover of words. Mm-hmm. So it's, as I grow, I'm like, well, I don't have to necessarily. Like the projects I've been putting out recently, they might have like two or three curse words on the whole album, if that. Mm-hmm. Like, And it doesn't even feel unnatural for me. But I have to say I do still use that word sometimes in amongst friends and but I take it upon myself to, in my music, to be at least aware of it, and also still stay honest to who I am. I sure. think we as artists and as human beings have to. One of the biggest issues I have with with us growing in America is us just being honest with right. with ourselves and with each other. So I, I I honestly still use the word, but I'm I'm maybe one day I won't. Is there a difference between that word ending with? A versus ER? No, nah, I don't. Th- I don't think. I mean, I know we get into the to the uh, some the semantics of it. Is we get into the like little details, but I I think the biggest difference is is intention and who it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, unfortunately, like it never it never felt right. Even with when young white kids in the hip hop culture were were trying to use the word, it's like it still doesn't feel no. right. It just it just doesn't feel right. And and to me, a, a a black person should has to communicate that to to them and say, tell them why. And and I think that's part of us growing too as as a culture. Well, and the, so I guess the conundrum becomes when young white people are getting into this music and they're hearing it and they like the music, then it becomes the question that that you're talking about, which is like, and I'm fully with you. They shouldn't be using that word, but at the same time, if they love common or whoever that happens to potentially be using it it's a it's an interesting you know crossroads that we've arrived at but well i think you know scott i think that's where sensitivity and compassion and understanding comes in and and everybody i can't expect all you know kids to have that yet so we have to teach them and that's where it's, it's a situation where if i'm sitting around with a latino family and it's something that makes them feel uncomfortable, a word that I would use, or if I brought up a subject matter, I have to pay attention to that and say, is it worth me using this word and and how that makes them feel? It's so it's songs now that I that I can rap that I at certain points when it's saying something that I don't philosophically believe in, I just stop and don't say those words. Wow. Right? So it's making that kind those are the type of socially conscious choices that we have to make as human beings to say, you know what? I could say this word to make myself feel good, but let me think about how that's making right. this other person feel, and is it worth it? That's It's empathy. That's yeah, the question. That's uh, it right yeah. there. Around 2003, I think, not that long after you've just had this biggest success yet in music, you decide to start dipping your foot into the world of acting. <laughs> yeah. And I think the first thing was... TV with the series Girlfriends in 2003, and then the first film, I think, was of a, of a major role would have been Smoking Aces in 2007. Yes. Why and how did you suddenly become an actor? Was that something you'd always wanted to do, or did it just kind of happen? Similar to music, it wasn't anything that I knew I could do, but I was a big fan of movies, theater, and TV. But really, movies and theater, really, I, I love going to plays. Really? Yeah, and I love movies. And I would rent movies. This is when you would rent movies. <laughs> <laughs> no. And my friends would be like, what are you watching? <laughs> I would watch, you know, whether it was Basquiat or Usual Suspects <laughs> or, or Four Rooms. Right. Just films that people, Happy Gilmore, just right. a, a wide range. <laughs> but 2000, after the album, like Water for Chocolate, I hit a kind of a creative ceiling musically. And I really felt that there was something out there for me to do, creative, another way for me to dig into the divine aspect of art and, and expressing myself. But I didn't know what it was. I started working on trying to play instruments, and it just didn't feel natural. I went to my first acting class, and I felt like the heavens opened up. I was like, wow, I never knew that I could express myself in this way. And it was this fun and it, and I what led you even to go there well I was I was like I have to do something else because I didn't know how long my rap career was going to last I didn't know how long at that moment I wasn't like 150% passionate about making another project 
and I just feel like it's we got so much to give and to offer, right? So I was like, what is it? Where am I? What is my vessel? And acting like I was introduced because I, I was doing the, this this project called Lyricist Lounge. I was on this thing on MTV where they would have people do it was like skits. Mm-hmm. So my A and R at the time introduced me to my acting coach, who's still my acting coach to this day, and and her technique. Greta Seacat, who's mm-hmm. amazing. Her and Sandra Seacat. Oh, uh, yeah. Who's, who's taught like Laura Dern and yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and, and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. And, and Michelle Williams and, you know, yeah. the list goes yeah. on. And so that method and, and style was really enlightening for me. And, and I felt that I was learning something about me, about humanity, about acting and art. And it just felt like a world. Like I was so happy to go. I had never seen On the Waterfront. Yeah. To go back and, and, and check out Streetcar Named mm-hmm. Desire, like in film, or, mm-hmm. you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Network. These are things that I was. So that world just opened up to me, and every day I just couldn't wait to go to acting class. And then eventually it became me getting turned down for a lot of auditions and smoking <laughs> aces mm-hmm. was actually the first. You know, because I was balancing making a living, and, and I still loved music. And we're still making it. Yeah, making yeah. music and releasing albums. But I was balancing that with going to acting class. So I just eventually got to that audition with Joe Carnahan, and I got my first call back. And it, <laughs> it was amazing. And then the next step was the second call back, and I walked into that audition. I just flew from performing in China mm-hmm. and we had to stop in France and I walked got straight off the plane and went into the audi- audition and I saw a storyboard when I was walking in it was the first time I seen a movie storyboard mm-hmm. and I was like I want to do this this is what I want to <laughs> be a part of and thank God I mean I, I really I just am grateful to be able to be in in acting I want to do theater at some point yeah that'd be and, great and, I'm, and, and it's something I know I have to grow and I'm going to work and give a hundred and fifty percent, three hundred and sixty degrees of all of me to to grow to become a great actor. But I do believe I can be a great actor. I do too. I've seen I've seen the signs of it in in your performances, and I I wonder, oh for sure. And how, do you think that being an actor has changed the way you are as a musician, or vice versa? For sure, I feel a lot more as a musician. I feel a lot more free. I feel a lot more like. I can perform in ways that I, I don't hold back anything. I'm I'm bigger than I've ever been as far as expressing things in music. I think I've shut down some of the walls that I felt that that you could create yourself and that being in a hip-hop culture, you could kind of say, well, I should only do these type of things. I was already venturing out with, with albums like, like Water for Chocolate mm-hmm. and Electric Circus, but now it's, it's not just about the creation of the music is about presenting the music and the themes and, and also getting into backstories when I write. And and the way I want to present visuals is a whole new thing. And I always utilize my my accessibility to these great directors yeah. and directors of photography and actors. I asked them, Yo, can you come? I mean, Ava DuVernay, I've asked. She executive produced a, a music video, a piece, right? Yeah, yeah. A piece or, or of, film, yeah, film. short yeah. film called Black America. Yeah. yeah. That was great. And I think you also picked a, a pretty cool director for that too, right? This, I mean, Bradford Young is one of the greatest minds, greatest artists, yeah. incredible director, director of photography. I, I mean, every time I'm with them, I'm like, it just raises me up. There's something about the two of you, and I got to spend an evening doing kind of a tribute to him in London earlier, or I guess it was earlier this year or last year. And there is something about the two of you that really reminds me of, uh, you know, where one of you reminds me of the other. It, yeah. There's the same kind of vibe. I don't know how to describe it any yeah. better than that, but it makes sense that you two would yeah, hit I, it off. I got to say, I mean, he has taken me to a world where, like, of art that I hadn't experienced. Like, I've, I've just recently over the summer went to ex- exhibit he had in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Museum. Oh man, it was so beautiful, like what he had did this exhibit. But just his installations alone, like when I see all his installations that he has in museums and art places around the the country, and the way he respects culture, the Black America again visual we did, and and the letter letter to the free visuals, these short stories 
the short films were, mm-hmm. he really paid attention to to the culture and said we have to. We went to the block where they where the police officers picked up the young man named Freddie Gray, who yeah. was, who eventually died. Um, this was in Baltimore. In right? Baltimore, yeah. we went. He specifically wanted to do Baltimore, and that's why I, I, working with Bradford is like, okay, he's shooting Star Wars, but. Mm-hmm. He's going to bring you to the rooted part of culture and give you that truth. And just the way he describes things, it's always inspirational being around him. I think the thing Ava really likes about him, from what I remember, is that, and we should tell people who don't know who we're talking about, this is, I think, the only person in history who won the Sundance Cinematography Award twice, maybe three times, I think three times, and also just got an Oscar nomination for Arrival. Arrival, yeah. But I think the thing Ava really likes about him is that she says not everybody knows how to shoot black skin on camera in an effective way. And he does that in a, in a really artful way in particular, among other great yeah. things. I'm not, right. I mean, it's, it's not his obviously his visual ability is not limited to just black skin. But right. the level of what he does with with images with black people is. It, it's, you get to see the beauty, the depth, the soul. He he gets into the soul of of the images and the people that he's shooting. And I, when I watched Selma, I was like, "This is a beautiful right. piece of work." But I mean, even when you watch any of his work, like you you like Bradford Young, man. I can't <laughs> wait to God willing, I'll be working with him again soon. I hope so. Well, coming almost to Selma because we're talking about acting and music blending, and that's the ultimate example. But First, I want to ask you about a weird chapter in 2011 where I think a certain demographic of the public was introduced to you. And I will say I would, based on every study I've ever seen, I think the demographic would be called old conservative white people who (laughs) basically get all their information from Fox News. And if all they ever saw was Fox News, they would think that you are the boogeyman. Right, exactly. Because for for a year there or so, I just remember and I try to just in order to keep up with what's going on in in news and culture and all that, I flip around and I also yeah. like to know what people who disagree with me are yeah, thinking. Yeah, it's great to know. That. So I'm watching and I and I also just it just kind of went viral to the point where John Stewart had to go on Fox News and sort of talk O'Reilly down because he was the biggest culprit here, but you were the boogeyman to these guys because you get an invitation, I guess, to do a poetry reading or something at the White House from Michelle Obama. It's like May 2011, and what happened then? Can you tell us? Well, I'm going to tell you like exactly specifically. First of all, I believe that was obviously to bring down our President Barack Obama mm-hmm. and, and our First Lady Michelle Obama. That was an attack on them. Attacking me was really related to that. When I first, I was working on a film and I f- started getting text messages like, don't believe what they're saying about you. So, so I was thinking it was some like scandal, <laughs> like like, you know, like some, something, right. a woman, uh, what right. did I do? Like, right. I, ain't doing nothing, like, I ain't been doing nothing crazy. I'm focused. <laughs> and I got, you know, my manager and team sat me down and said, hey, you know, Fox News is saying this about you and the White House, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to go to the White House, and we're waiting to hear back if they're still going to have you come to the White House. Because what was the issue that they were making? What, a- what I did a song. I wrote a, a song called "A Song for Asada," and it was about a. It's about a woman named Asada Shakur, who was a, a Black Panther, who is now in exile. But I read her autobiography, and it was beautifully a beautiful person. And she was accused of killing these state troopers, but her attorney approved it. It was no way she could have pulled the trigger because she was shot herself. I mean, it's shot in a place where she couldn't have pulled the trigger. So I, I I did a song as a dedication to her, just not all based around that incident. It was just based around her life and how she's been a light to so many people to stand up for what you believe in. And, and you know, how she honestly escaped the, the grasp of, of racism and is now in exile in Cuba. So I did that song on, on the album, like Water for Chocolate, and I also spoke against police brutality in my songs. God forbid and, that you would take that position. Oh, why would I do that? <laughs> so, you know, Fox, Sarah Palin, all they were like, yo, this guy's he supports cop killers and 
and they, he's a vowel rapper. They started saying I was a vowel rapper. Of all the of all the rappers they could yeah, pick to yeah, say that yeah, about, yeah, that's was, the crazy thing. And, and, and ironically, a week before I was on a Fox show, <laughs> and they was like saying how positive I was and what a I was Fox doing. A Fox News show, a Fox, yeah, or a Fox a, Network yeah, broadcast Fox, yeah, network. Fox. Yeah. Well, it was a Fox News interview. Okay, like, yeah, and you were a good guy then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, was, so so. Initially, I kind of first was thinking like, wow, these people know who I am. Where did this come from? (laughs) (laughs) And then second, I was like, okay, this first of all, this is not true. That was the second thing I was thinking. Then eventually I was like, if it's anything that I want to catch controversy or heat for, it's standing up against police brutality and standing up for, for freedom and people that I believe that are innocent in the ways that Bono in the ways that Bob Dylan and the ways that Bob Marley and these greats, these juggernauts have stood up for for what they believe in is right. Was it tough not to respond? Because you didn't really, if, as I recall, engage with this guy. I mean, if you could, I guess, A, was it tough not to respond then? And B, now that we've had the passage of six years, an Oscar, a departure of Mr. O'Reilly himself for reasons that are not upstanding, yeah. would you care to respond now no I mean I always felt that at that point that people will see who I am I never at any moment felt I need to say I'm a good guy because <laughs> my actions I'm a believer I was just reading this this morning like love is a choice and an action word so I felt that the love that I express in my music and who I am is going to be seen in the choices I make and in my actions so the only time it shook me a little was when my mother was getting a little affected by it. And she knew, I mean, she wasn't like, she she was more like, why are they saying this? And this is hurting me that mm-hmm. they saying this about you. And this is, you know, her friends calling her. I'm like, ma, you know, this is not <laughs> true. So don't let it affect you. Right. And it's just part of what you have to experience as a, as an artist, and I got to say, John Stewart did an excellent job. Yeah, at, 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 I told him when I went on his show, I yeah. said, "Look, you could be my manager." Yeah. The way. <laughs> and look, if there's you know a silver lining here, maybe there's a couple of eighty-five-year-old retirees in Florida who went on and Googled Common and got yeah, into the music. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. And now you know some of those same guys and, and, and girls come up to me and say, "Man, we seen you on Hell on Wheels. We love you." <laughs> 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 All right, so back to back to Selma, which was, I think it seems like a pretty major moment in your life, and it was a major film. This was your first interaction, I believe, with Ava DuVernay, and I wonder how you two first crossed paths, how you wound up not only acting in this movie, but also contributing a song to it that ended up with a Critics' Choice Award, a Golden Globe Award, an Oscar, clearly a song that clicked with a lot of people. yeah. I met Ava at Sundance the year that she had her, her middle of nowhere, middle of nowhere, yeah. and, and and it was, did very well at Sundance, and I think she was the first black woman director. I think that's to, right to to be nominated or to win best director. Yeah, so it was a great experience meeting her. She was really bringing people together that were dealing with film, and just we had a nice dinner. I didn't even know that the Selma movie was about to get made, and my agent called me and told me I was potentially up for a role as, for the role of James Bevel, and Ava wanted to to Skype with me. Ava, we Skyped, and I was like, I really want to be a part of this. Like, this, Out of any movie that I ever had an opportunity, this is a movie I really wanted to be a part of. She eventually chose me to be James Bevel. And we should just t- remind people, this is a guy who was part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s inner circle and one of the more radical guys in it, right? Yeah, definitely a radical. Ironically, he's, he actually had a music background to a really? certain degree. Yeah, wow. and was really a, he was the one that, his ideas were radical too. He came up with the idea to come up with, to, to do the Young People's March, which was really effective because putting young people out on, on the front line and America seeing how young people were being treated by law enforcement was enlightening. And he also had, I believe, was one of the first people to come up with ideas about the March on Washington. Mm-hmm. So th- when we when we first met for Selma, our first rehearsal, I knew that this was a life-changing experience. We 
the way Ava as a leader just had us, all these incredible people she has selected, talented, beautiful souls. Her her vision is is impeccable. But then, you know, the talk that we had with Ambassador Andrew Young, who started talking to us about who was Dr. King's, one of Dr. King's right-hand men throughout this whole thing, mm-hmm. Ambassador Andrew Young, in his own right as one of the civil rights leaders. Mm-hmm. And just thought the information we were getting, the inspiration we were getting was life-changing. So as I went through the process of, of being James Bevel and learning the people of the civil rights movement, I felt like I had to do more work. Like I was doing community work, I'm doing music, but I have to do more. We did the film. I know that the the studio and everybody was trying to figure out who they were going to get to do music for. I spoke with Ava and said, and Ava said, you know, create something. One day I just had this this moment where I said, let me call John Legend. And you guys knew each other already or no? Yeah, J- John and I, we both were, I met John, you know, through Kanye, good music when we initially. Right, right, So right. we had like created songs together, toured together, friends. Right. And... I just called him and said, John, it's this movie I'm a part of. It's incredible, and this is what it is. He called, he sent, I gave him three titles, and that third title was Glory. That's all you're saying, just titles to see if it sparked something? Yeah, I told him three titles, because I still saved, I remember the text. What were the other two? I can't remember. I I would have to look (laughs) at it, but it was something about when, like, it was something about when, when the Lord speaks, or it, it was, I don't know, it was a little, and one of them was abstract. Mm-hmm. But Glory, he said, spoke to him. Mm-hmm. And two days later, he told me he, didn't, he was on tour, so he didn't have too much time to really get into the studio. But he told me, after I said, sent him Glory, he started writing something. He went in the studio, he was in London, and he sent it back to me two days later. And I was like, Man, this is one of the most beautiful songs I've heard. Just his singing in his in the chords. So what he sent back to you was the was basically the the chorus. The the chorus. It was the chorus. Him singing "Glory," and just the chords to the song. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And we, you know, at that point, like I said, I went to my father's memorial, and then I started to write the song. I told Ava, "Hey, I got this song," and I said, "How does the movie end?" Because I hadn't seen. And she was like, it ends with Dr. King with his hands up. And I was like, yo, do you understand? I start <laughs> off the song saying hands to the heavens. That's I, then I was like, man, this is meant to be. So anyway, we, we gave him the song. And, Did you know, and, so you knew at that point that the song was going to be end credits? Well, it was really more of a submission. Like, okay. More of like she said, create something and we'll see if it, if it makes it to the to the cut. And just to remind people about, so you've been given the chords and the chorus by John. At that point, you go off, and what you're doing is coming up with the rap portions? Yeah, I'm writing the rap, like writing, going through this thought of, of what Selma had been, what the civil rights movement had been, and where we are, where we were at that time, and where we are now, actually. Was that a risky thing to do, to bring in the now part? Because you know the film's a period piece, and Clearly, the issues that it deals with haven't gone away, but did that feel like a creative gamble to start bringing in, for example, let's just remind people of a line that you rap, quote, that's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up, close quote. So bringing in Ferguson to a song that's going to be in Selma, do you have any pause about doing that? You know, I I felt what it it did. I naturally wrote that, and I didn't think like a lot, think hard or think was I like moving away from the film because what I actually felt I was doing and what we did was show how much of what went on then was still going on now. And we made it relate. We made a period piece feel like now. And that's why we eventually was like Selma is now Mm -hmm. for every man, woman and child. Mm -hmm. So I think I wanted to bring that from the 60s up to to where we are now because people needed to understand that some of those issues were not resolved. Did your contributions to the song, talk about how kind of that came together. Was it the kind of thing where you can sit down and in a couple hours come out with something like this? Or does it is it something you labor over over weeks? Or what's the process that results in what ended up being this song, which I want to just also note, cracked the top 50 on the Billboard Hot 100, 
won all those awards that we're talking about, but really moved a lot of people. I think it was maybe the partly the contrast between the the styles of what John's doing in the song, what you're doing in the song, what you're talking about. Just so so you're part of it, working separately geographically from John, right? You guys aren't like sitting in the same room with each other. How did your part come together? Well, my part, I love writing in the car. Like, really? I don't like write. I don't write my songs down. Like, I don't use a pen. I just say them in my head, and then once I get a line that I like, I just keep saying it in my wow. head, and then I'll and I'll keep building from those lines. And I actually was writing this song. I was doing this project where it was I was hosting this show, and I would write every day on the way to to work and on the way back. I was in a real open-hearted space and I had been so moved by Selma and Selma as will forever, the film, that experience will forever be a life-enhancing experience for me. So I just was writing. It took, it took, I would say it took about a week's time for me to write it because once I get to a certain point, if I don't feel like it's coming from that just divine expression where I'm not thinking, then I stop. So I would get there and just stop and then like oh this this is great and then I'll just keep building from there I actually wrote the last part because I had to leave to go on tour to Australia I wrote the last part when I was in Australia so it was over probably a week and a half space that I wrote it well the other thing I gotta ask you last question about Selma and and Glory is kind of a two-parter I saw you perform it throughout that season that was leading up to what ended up with you guys accepting an Oscar and there were a few opportunities to see it. I did not see it live when you guys went to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma to mark the 50th anniversary, which I know was probably comparably special to winning the Oscar. But whenever I saw you performing it, and I guess a lot of your music, you are very expressive might be the right word with your hands when you're, and I wonder if that's almost like a a metronome or what that is because you are it's moving it's constantly and it's not in like not even in the i'm not like clueless about rap i've yeah, seen rap yeah, and i know yeah. people do that yeah. but like you do it in a different way so i wonder what's up with the hands in a, in a non-judgmental way I, I think it's cool i just wonder what it is and then also what it meant to have the song embraced to the extent that it was well it's hard to explain the hands. I don't know like where the hands started as far as my expression. As you can see, Scotty, or as we talk sometimes, it's a lot of hands coming. But I will say this. My friends always joke about my hands. Anytime they want to imitate me, they, they start using the hands. But I believe if there's any way for me to try to crystallize it or express it, it would be it's, the hands are also an expression of my emotions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I have a lot, you know, that I want to express. And I think my hands are like a way, another way along with my voice to express that emotion. So if that's a way to explain it, I would say that. And to have Glory and and Selma go to the heights that it it has been to and went to is one of the most fulfilling experiences in my life ever because it's the concept of giving and receiving where... The movie gave so much to me and we gave so much to the project and the people of the civil rights movement gave so much to us. Black, white people gave, you know, and and the women and men gave so much that to be able to give back and then to see that reach the levels that it reached and that message to get out there. For me, I always say this, it was no other song or movie that I would want to receive in my first Academy Award yes, for. Yes, I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> then Selma and yeah. Glory. And what it opened up, the access that it opened up, it, it gave me more responsibility and more work to do. And even now, a friend of mine sent me a clip of some kids in, at her school performing Glory, and it wow. still touches me. It hits my heart because that's what, the if it's anything that you, as we described, Scott, that I wanted my my music and career art to be about is to be about change, positive change and improving people's lives and to have something reach that level and scale and it be about that is is the biggest reward. That's awesome. And you guys gave a great acceptance speech. So. Uh, thank you. Thank so you. now this brings us to the home stretch here, which is about a song that I first heard almost exactly a year ago at the opening night of the New York Film Festival when this movie, 13th, another Ava DuVernay 
project had its world premiere. And then afterwards, the cool thing was that at Tavern on the Green, they have a big after party on the opening night. And you surprised everybody by getting up there and performing the song that is also in the film called Letter to the Free. And it was terrific. And Thank you. I understand that your appreciation of the full scope of mass incarceration, oddly enough, began during that Oscar acceptance speech that I was just asking you about. So it really connects the dots. Yeah, really. Uh, when John Legend in, in his Academy Awards speech said that it's more black men incarcerated right now than were enslaved in 1850, it shook me. I, I was like, wow, that, like, it really shook me. And from there, I started to, to seek out more information about it because I always really thought of People, you know, I have had people who were close to me go to jail. My uncle had been in jail before, so it was, if it, it seemed kind of normal. But as the term and the thought of mass incarceration started to come to light for me more, and I did my research, I realized how abnormal it is and how systemic it had been, and how get you know I started reading and meeting with. I read a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And I started to learn more about how slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration all share certain similarities. It's like it kept certain people in a certain position, which is black people, to, to not be able to vote, to not, obviously in slavery you couldn't get a job, you were, you were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And you know, also it was hard to get housing. And it just limited, it made people second-class citizens. So for me to gather all that information and understand how it was affecting our society, and not only just black people with mass incarceration, black and brown people, and just how America became the most incarcerated country and how that was, all that information was like, I have to do something. Well, when I found out Ava was doing the film 13th, because it was under wraps, and then she called me one time and said, yo, you should check out the screening but I couldn't check out the screening. And I said, well, look, can I please write a song for, for, for the film? <laughs> Do you understand what this is like? This is this on is my heart. This is where you're already thinking about. Yeah, this about, is where yeah. I am. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm prepared. Like, I've, I'm prepared. I've done my research already. Right. And I've seen it. Well, she was like, you got to submit a song because I got other people. <laughs> All you did was win her an Oscar for a movie. That's uh, I guess that doesn't get you very far. <laughs> no, I didn't give me that power. Ava Duvin, right. I love Ava. Ava's, Ava's no joke. She's yeah. like, look. <laughs> you got to come with it or, and I, I respect it because, you know, you can't just always just hand things out to people, you know. I think it has to add, I want to add on to her project. Right. Like, I want to add on to the to the story. When you went to work on the song, had you by that point seen the doc or not yet? No, I hadn't seen the doc. I, like, I really have to say the new Jim Crow and getting to talk to Michelle Alexander because I was doing my own. Yeah. I was part of a documentary where I had to interview, I interviewed Michelle Alexander and this and somebody, this state's attorney of Chicago now named Kim Fox, and I was and I went to the Cook County Jail, so I was getting all, I was sparked to to do be a part of the change. So I said, Ava, I started writing. I started writing. I was on a plane to London, and I just closed my eyes and started thinking about what I wanted to say. And because I knew I wanted to trace. And I knew 13th was dealing, because I didn't know about the 13th Amendment said, mm -hmm. said that slavery is abolished unless you commit a crime. So I started really getting into thinking about this, the slave aspects and, and where we've come from there to Jim Crow and now to mass incarceration. So I kind of went to a strange fruit sort of place, um, the song by Billie Holiday and mm -hmm. Nina Simone, also made famous. And I just w wanted to write something that was emotional, something that was spiritual, something that was moving and traced those things and gave information, but also was hopeful and, and also led a charge to say we we can achieve this freedom and we can change this situation, but acknowledge the issues. So I just started writing. And, and ironically enough, about a year ago, President Obama had a birthday party and I already written the first verse before we even had the music for, for Letter mm -hmm. to the Free. And I saw Ava at the party, and I started. This uh, is at the White House. Yeah, it's at the White okay. House. I saw a little the detail, a little important yeah, detail. This, this is at the White House. It's important detail. Yeah, right. I, I skipped over that. <laughs> this is at the White House, and by the way, 
I can speak for the White House at that time. They had incredible red wine. So I drank <laughs> I drank a little bit of red wine right. enough yeah. where I was, had the courage to say, look, Ava, I'm about to... I started saying the song, rapping the song in her ear. She was listening for a good moment. Then I saw her attention waver <laughs> over to, to where the president was. I mean, was... The president was coming over. Like, of course, he usurped me. Right. And she said, okay, that sounded good. Let me hear the song. So I got Robert Glasper, who who is an incredible pianist, and Kareem Riggins, who, are, who we formed this group. And they created the music, and I told them what the vibe was. We still hadn't seen the film. And then we got a trumpeteer named Roy Hargrove, a flautist named Elena Penderhughes, and we all created. Robert and Kareem produced the music, and I just wrote the rest. And when we sent it to Ava, she was like, give me a call. <laughs> I called her, and she was like, I love this song. I love this. This song is incredible for the, for the film. But... Do you think they'll say, oh, why are they trying to do it again if they just did it with... You know what my argument was, Scott? I said, do you know how many times Martin Scorsese works, <laughs> worked with Robert De Niro, yeah, DiCaprio? Right, right, right. He worked with DiCaprio. I love that. I gave, that was exactly the... That's the, a uh, solid and, explanation. And, I, and by the way, it's not like it didn't work the last time. Yeah. <laughs> what's, wrong with, what's wrong with going well, back to something that's working? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I think I understand that. She didn't want want the the perspective to look like we're trying to go for awards and these things. When I when we create, it got it has to come from a pure place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be awarded is a beautiful thing. It's like to be nominated is it's it's a joy for me as an artist. It's a blessing. I'm grateful. But the core of why we do this is to create art that is meaningful and this impactful and this and it's in greatness. So I think she wanted to make sure. The people knew that, but she couldn't deny it. It ended up, she ended up changing the end of the film because of the song "Letter to That's the Free." Cool. She That's changed cool. the end of thirteenth. So, just two remaining questions, and one of them I want to follow up on what you're talking about about awards because you are now nominated for an Emmy for "Letter to the Free," and if that pans out into a, a win, you will then have a very big ego <laughs> but not in the traditional yeah, sense right, right, right. you will have emmy grammy and oscar yes and that means you got to go get that t the tony and not again i understand that's not the driving motivation for why you're creative but it does beg a question as a man who has said already in this conversation that you're a big theater lover yeah. and as an interviewer who covers the theater for us you know during tony season and loves that yeah I have to ask, is uh, are we going to see you on Broadway at any point at, or writing for Broadway or, or anything like that? Yes. My answer is yes. That's great. And as I said, I love theater and I really would love to act on Broadway and write on Broadway and write music for Broadway and produce for Broadway because we have Freedom Road Productions, which is our film television and, and eventually will be theater great. production. Great. Yeah. And, and I have to say... I. Humbly, I would love an ego, and, <laughs> and I, I would be humble with an yes, ego. Yes. But I mean, but it would be a beautiful thing to achieve something of that level. And EGOT would—that's, I mean, is only I think twelve or thirteen yeah, people yeah. who have done it. So to to do that in in the history of art, I mean, film, theater, television, and music. I mean, that, that would be an incredible blessing. You but, and Lin-Manuel are in the race to be the it, next one, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, well, uh, but I'll say the biggest blessing yeah. is the platform that it creates. Like, to win an Academy Award, to get an Emmy nomination for Letter to the Free and, and 13th, the things that we get to talk about, the people that we get to reach, the lives that we get to change, that's the most important thing for me more than anything. And... I love that. I love that I can get on the stage and 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 do a song like Gloria, do a song like Letter to the Free for the masses. You know, that's the biggest gift. Last question. We again said that Letter to the Free was written and first heard about a year ago in September. That means that it was less than two months before November 8th, 2016, when we were all, I think it's fair to say, kind of surprised by the outcome of that presidential election. The lyrics of Letter to the Free include the quote, we staring in the face of hate again, the same hate that say, we'll make America great again, close quote. Can you just talk about those lyrics and how in the aftermath of November 8th, 2016, how you personally are moving forward with your activism and 
how you suggest other people do the same. It's pretty disheartening for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, on a light note, your rap sounded pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only time I'll ever hear that. <laughs> well, well, on a serious note, um, I believe, you know, how I decided to move forward was to realize that whether the president or the federal government or any politicians are are not in agreement with what I believe is is doing right for the country and doing right for human beings. And I don't feel like or observe them reaching out for those who are underserved or just the average human being in America. It makes me say that I have to take situations in, into my own hands and, and figure out what can I do to improve lives. And I have to do more work. And it also, for me, what I've observed is it it has awakened a lot of people to to want to do more. And it's kind of like the the pain and, and the hatred that is that exists in America had as it surfaced, it also allowed people who want to see good in America and want to spread love. That surfaced too. And what I took it upon myself to do, well, Letter to the Free was one of the things that helped get me to this point as far as wanting to do more with mass incarceration. I connected with an organization called ARC, ran by Scott Butnick, who actually was a producer of The Hangover, but has been doing incredible work when it comes to prison reform. And we went into four different California state prisons and just talked to individuals and learned and found out things that we can do to support this epidemic of mass incarceration and help try to get policies changed. My suggestion and belief is no government is greater than the people. No government is greater than God. So if the government is not going our way, we have to con continue to f identify things that we know we can change. It starts with the simple acts, just treating yourself with love, treating others with love and respecting others. People that are different from you, like I said earlier about using certain things that if it offends them, what's the purpose? What is it worth? And having those those uncomfortable discussions. But beyond that is the action, the action. I'm not just here because I'm writing songs. I want to be a part of the action and the policy change. When I talked about Selma, I saw the people, the civil rights movement making change, like those laws and things that they helped to change has affected us and will affect generations to come. I want to be a part of those things. And whether you're a teacher, whether you're a journalist, whether you're an artist, whether you're a bus driver, you can figure out things within the community to do, things within your community, and identify things state and locally, laws that you can help support. When I talk about this prison reform, we got this thing, Imagine Justice, that I'm going to perform at the concert. It's at the Capitol. Today. Today. It's at the Capitol, and we're performing in Sacramento. It's already, it's going to be over 25,000 people there. And it's, and it's too... Helps in support of these bills that are dealing with young adults and juveniles being sentenced to life without parole, which is something that only America has. That only America has life without parole for really for juveniles and, and young adults. And we want to we just want the country and, and this state and people to see prison reform in a different way, see incarceration in a different way and try to create avenues where people can have second chances and be looked at as human beings. And I feel whatever your passion is, that's spreading love to, to yourself and other human beings, we have to pursue that with all that we got right now. And that's what I th think our call is for, for us with this government that we have in this space and time, because divisiveness is divisiveness, but we don't have to focus on that every day and just just in, and digest that every day. We have an opportunity to say, okay, that's what that is, that exists. What am I going to do to combat that? And that's to go out and do good. Well, you're a busy man doing great things, and I really appreciate you fitting this in and, and have, a, have a great concert. It's important, so thank you. Thank you, Scott.